Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point with me, Li Xin, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. Troubled waters in the South China Sea. A tense hours-long standoff between China and the Philippines unfolded on Saturday near Rengai Jiao, a disputed reef in the South China Sea. The China Coast Guard blocked two Philippine Navy vessels from intruding into the adjacent waters of uh, Rengai Jiao, known as uh, Ayungin in the Philippines and Second Thomas Shoal internationally. The Philippine ships were delivering construction materials to a broken military vessel which has been grounded on the reef since 1999. The standoff sparked immediate criticisms from the Philippines and the US which China promptly rejected. So how did a rusty warship ground itself on the reef in the uh, first place? What exactly happened during this standoff over the weekend and uh, What's the business of the United States in the matter? I'm pleased to be joined from Haiko, Southern China, by Dr. Yan Yan, Director of the Research Center of Oceans Law and Policy of the National Institute for South China Sea Studies, and from Manila, the Philippines, by Herman Teo Lauro, President of Asian Century Philippines Strategic Studies Institute. The warmest welcome to both of you. Um, first, Dr. Yan, let me go to you. We have seen footages released by China over the engagement or the standoff between the two sides and we're seeing water cannons being used by the Chinese side against the Filipino vessels. Exactly why were water cannons used? What happened exactly during the standoff? Well, actually, before the standoff, I think uh, China has been repeatedly communicating with the Philippine side uh, again and again, trying to uh, stop them from going to do the supply uh, mission. Uh, but then they refused to do so. Um, and also before the water cannon, actually, the Chinese Coast Guard exerted uh, oral warning. And then the Philippine ship insist to go inside and to uh, make the uh, supply so that uh, China use water cannon. Actually, there are many means of uh, maritime law enforcement uh, and the uh, using of water cannon is actually one of the mildest means of uh, law enforcement in, uh, in maritime. And also in China's, uh, in the South China Sea, we see many conflicts in the ocean and we see that many types of uh, use of force by uh, law enforcement agencies between so Vietnam water between Malaysia and here? Asia. Yes. Why water cannons here? What's the consideration of China? And has there been any personnel damage or any people hurt on both sides? Yeah, exactly. There's no damage or, or and no casualty during this whole process. And water cannon is actually one of the mildest means of uh, maritime law enforcement. And also the Chinese Coast Guard does not target it at the uh, the Philippine vessel itself. Thus, uh, it's a it's a show of China's self-restraint and just to warn our Philippine uh, counterpart and trying to stop them from entering into that area. Mr. Laurel, what has been the reaction and reportage, first of all, and domestic reaction in the Philippines to the incident? Well, uh, before that, uh, may I just uh, explain that uh, it's very important for the audience to understand that uh, the disputed area Renai Chiao or Ayungin Shoal or Second Thomas Shoal is not disputed only between China and the Philippines, but uh, also Malaysia, Indo uh, Malaysia, Brunei, uh, and uh, Vietnam. Uh, but uh, we, we have a case of um, the exercise of sovereignty by China over the area because of its claim, uh, but also now uh, being challenged again by the Philippines. 
Uh, so we have this incident. And so the uh, use of the uh, water cannon in one of the vessels, because the first vessel, I have to correct uh, your report, was allowed to deliver its uh, supply of water and, uh, and uh, food uh, for humanitarian reasons. And this has been the arrangement for the past uh, many decades mm -hmm. since 1999. So, yeah, why was so, the second vessel blocked? Or? Well, the second uh, vessel is a bigger vessel, and it is assumed that it is carrying construction materials. Now, why is the Philippines desiring to deliver construction materials? Because this is the way they could, uh, the Philippines could reconstruct the uh, uh, sinking vessel that was uh, deliberately grounded by the Philippine government in 1999 to serve as an anchor for its EEZ claim or territorial claim. However, the territorial claim of the Philippines has been negated by its arbitration case in The Hague, uh, and so it's now just the EEZ. Now, it's also important to stress that the territorial claims, not only of China, but also of Vietnam, Malaysia, and Brunei, are superior to the EEZ claims of the Philippines. So, But um, it's now uh, also important to answer your question, what the role of the Americans uh, have been in this incident. Uh, help us understand the domestic reaction, if you if you will, Mr. Well, I, I reviewed the social media responses. Of course, there is an over, overwhelming emotional uh, reaction to the uh, to the incident, and this is uh, designed. This is uh, by engineered by the American and local uh, operations of the uh, uh, information campaign of the Americans, and uh, of course, their pro-American counterparts in the Philippines. Okay. But we have had such, yeah. such incidents in the past, in 2021, uh, water cannon incident also. The emotion, the tsunami of emotions will pass, and then the uh, normalization will come about uh, again. So, mm. Dr. Yen, um, so why did China block, un in answering the detail that Mr. Laurel raised, why did China block what it believes to be construction materials needed to repair the grounded um, military vessel on Rengai Reef? Well, first of all, I think that the, the, uh, the, the Philippines put that vessel on this uh, second Thomas Shaw Rengai Jiao is trying to exert an effective control over the features that are disputed. And also for the past 24 years, I think China has been uh, exercising self-restraint and reached some kind of consensus with the Philippines for uh, humanitarian reasons uh, to allow the Philippines to ship some necessary uh, food and, and waters to the, sh to, to the people, you know, on the, on the vessel. However, this time, I think China trying to block the, uh, the second uh, supply ship is just because the Philippines is changing the status quo and trying to consolidate the vessel, uh, which it promised to tow away like 20 years ago. We had some difficulties finding documents supporting because China does say that the Philippines agreed to tow them away. Um, when did they make that pledge and uh, why was it never followed through? Well, China did make a diplomatic protest in, back in 1999 when we found out that the ship was uh, there in, a, in the Renaijiao and also through diplomatic communications and channels, um, the Philippines did make uh, several times of uh, commitments that they will tote it away. And that's why we have this uh, kind of reached some, some kind of consensus to maintain their basic supply, you know, on the ship uh, before it, it was it will be towed away. And if, if, just think about it. If China really wants to stop the necessary and ordinary supply like food and waters, and how can the Philippines station on the ship for 24 years? 
measures. Thus, I think that China has already exercised very high, the highest level of self-restraint in terms of this incident. Mr. Loro, uh, what is the the biggest question, you know, on the mind of the Filipino people when it comes to this incident? Is it about who does the uh, reef belong, or the China use of, uh, you know, water can or sea time, maritime uh, legal instruments to dispel the Filipino ship? What is the Filipino reaction most strongly about? Well, in fact, I think that there are not enough questions being asked by the ordinary Filipino who are emotionally reacting to this because they should, if they did, they would find out that it's the Americans engineering this from the very beginning because the report that was splashed in all the newspapers came from Raymond Powell, uh, an ex-Air Force, uh, U.S. Air Force uh, colonel uh, from the uh, Gordian Knot Institute. So, so uh, and there were three uh, U.S. warplanes or monitoring planes overhead while this was going on and they supplied the video material to the local Philippine media. Why do you media. think the United States step up their involvement in the case to stir up the sentiments? Well, uh, the uh, U.S. and the Philippine Coast Guard are going to start their joint patrols later this year in the last quarter of the year, uh, probably in November. So this is a preparation towards that and towards the uh, escalation of the uh, tension with China in the region. This is also a justification, a strengthening the justification for the U.S. bases in the Philippines that are being expanded today. So the Americans have the motive to support the Philippines in this challenging of this uh, sovereignty over this area. The U.S. State Department said in a statement that the U.S. reaffirms an armed attack on Philippine public vessels, aircraft and armed forces would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments under Article 4 of the 1951 U.S.-Philippines Mutual Defense Treaty. Mr. Laurel, once again, uh, does that treaty apply here? Is the United States expecting to ratchet up the response from China so that the U.S. and the Philippines have more excuse to stand together in so-called defense against China? Well, that is really the strategy of the Americans. And uh, in my clarification and discussion with uh, retired military and naval officers here in the Philippines, they say that the uh, BRP Sierra Madre, the ship that is derelict in the Ayung uh, Shoal or Rinai Chiao, uh, is still uh, in the active list of the uh, Philippine Navy, and it is still Philippine territory. However, it does not generate territorial rights or, or such uh, claims. So, uh, so if it is, but in theory, they say, in, if it is towed away by China, that would be an act against uh, Philippine territory and the Philippine ship. So that is what uh, is uh, the reason for this uh, uh, insistence on trying to maintain that uh, ship. Dr. Yen, yeah, what is the original agreement between uh, countries in the region to deal with such thorny matter when you have multiple claimants to a certain structure or reef. Uh, what has been the way to keep the situation calm? Well, actually, I wanted to uh, remind everybody of the 2002 Declaration on the Conduct of Parties, the DOC. And what is important is that the DOC, Article 5 of the DOC, which says the uh, parties undertake must exercise self-restraint in the conduct of activities that will complicate or escalate disputes. And thus, we think that all of the claimant states um, among uh, between, in, in ASEAN, especially South China Sea claimant states, should really exercise self-restraint and trying to not to... Uh, 
not to change the status quo uh, before we find we reach the final settlement of the dispute. So what uh, is going to be China's policy when it comes to um, containing the situation in the region so that, you know, not to give more reasons for the United States and the Philippines to join hands and target China potentially? I think either China's uh, South China Sea policy or China's uh, uh, proposed means of making the settlement of the dispute is consistent. And also we think that uh, it is very important for all the coastal states, especially the uh, the climate states, to uh, conduct maritime cooperation. Also trying to uh, make uh, further the negotiation of the conduct parties, uh, of the uh, conduct of, uh, of code of conduct in the South China Sea. Um, very quickly, well, the, um, some, some in the Philippines based their, based their claim to the islands on the grounds that uh, um, the reef is very close to the Philippines and that the uh, so-called tribunal in The Hague in 2016 kind of awarded the reef to, not to China. Can you explain China's counter-arguments very quickly, Dr. Yen? We must realize that the UNCLOS does not deal with territorial sovereignty dispute. And also, um, the uh, neither contiguity or proximity is the basis for un under international law for acquiring territory. Um, thus, we didn't realize, we didn't recognize the Philippines' claim in the, uh, in the on the Spratly Islands, the uh, Nanshan Chundao. And that's uh, from my personal point of view. And also, uh, the, uh, the, uh, it has been seven years since the, since the arbitral ruling came out, and we don't think we don't see the settlement of the final dispute. Either the maritime cooperation is moving forward. Thus, I think that there is it's time for us to think about maritime cooperation for the benefit of all. Thank you very much, Dr. Yen Yen, Director of the Research Center of Oceans Law and Policy of the National Institute for South China Sea Studies, and Herman Teal Laurel, President of Asian Century Philippines Strategic Studies Institute. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, you, former U.S. President Donald Trump has been indicted for three times, and the fourth is coming. How will his cases further ignite divide between Democrats and Republicans? Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Justice or politics? On August the 3rd, former U.S. President Donald Trump was indicted for four felony counts over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. This was his third indictment. In April and June, he was indicted on charges with 40 counts for improperly storing classified documents and with 34 counts for falsifying business records, respectively. And the fourth indictment is on the horizon. Fannie Willis, District Attorney of 
Fulton County, Georgia, is wrapping up her investigation on Trump's attempts to overturn his election defeat in the battleground state of Georgia. Against the sweeping charges, a recent poll shows that voters are sharply divided along party lines. What do the numbers tell us? Was this about politics or the rule of law? What are the implications for the 2024 presidential elections? I'm pleased to be joined from Managua, Nicaragua by Benjamin Norton, editor-in-chief at Geopolitical Economy Report, and from North Carolina, the U.S. by Jeffrey Schwartz, professor at Cooley Law School of Western Michigan University, also a former prosecutor, attorney and judge. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Mr. Norton, let me go to you first. Trump has been indicted, as I say, three times so far and is facing 78 felony counts in total. How big are his legal problems compared with the previous U.S. presidents? Well, this is unprecedented. Um, the reality is also that what Trump did was rather unprecedented. I mean, especially in this third indictment, I think this is actually the most important case of the three. Trump did try to overturn an election. He refused to recognize that he lost the election. And there is very compelling evidence in this third indictment. For instance, at the, the court, uh, the, uh, the indictment has noted, for instance, that his vice president, Mike Pence, refused to go along with Trump's attempt to overturn the election and Trump complained in this recording that Mike Pence was too honest, he said, which clearly implies that he knew that he was doing something dishonest. So, I mean, this really is an unprecedented case. I will say that I think in response to the first indictment, which involved Trump's allegedly illegal payments of hush money over the case involving Stormy Daniels, the adult film actress, there were people who said that maybe that was a pretty weak case. And then in response to the second indictment, in terms of his holding confidential documents, top secret documents in Mar-a-Lago, his residence, there were some people who said, okay, maybe this is a more serious case and there's more room to uh, prosecute him here. But I think in this third case, a lot of people agree that this is the most serious thing that Trump did. And it really is unprecedented. He really essentially did try to steal an election. Um. Yeah, Professor Schwartz, was Trump, yes. however, getting some special treatment here? Because uh, uh, Biden's lawyer, for instance, also discovered a small number of classified documents in an office Biden used at the think tank, um, Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement in late 2022. Uh, was Trump getting different treatment? Not really, because Mr. Trump has not been charged with the idea that he had taken the documents or had real possession of them. The real problem was the cover-up that was the obstruction of justice, that is the avoiding of the FBI's search warrant and not turning over the documents back to the archivist for the United States when it was demanded of him. So it really wasn't so much that he took them. Uh, in the cases of Biden and Mr. Pence, they didn't try to cover anything up. When their documents were discovered, they turned them over back to the government and they even offered, and in fact, the FBI did come in and search their residences and their offices for more documents. So it's really more about the cover-up than it is the actual offense um, in that particular case. Still with you, Professor Schwartz, the latest indictment was handed down. I mean, the third indictment was handed down by a special grand jury in uh, special counsel Jack Smith's investigation. In this case, how neutral is the special counsel? What do we know? Well, the special counsel used to be an employee of the Department of Justice, and then he left and he went to work for the World Court in The Hague. 
Uh, he is a very independent uh, type of guy. He has always been that way, even with the DOJ. And I think that in this particular case, he was the right person to push these uh, investigations forward. I think that uh, he's got very he's worked very carefully. He has gone step by step on these indictments. And I think his cases, the two that he has filed, are both very strong. What you're seeing in these cases, though, is the difference between a judge who is leaning towards Mr. Trump and doing everything he can to help him. And that's in the documents case and a judge from Washington, D.C., who is, I think, very prepared to push her case to trial as quickly as they possibly can, still protecting Mr. Trump's constitutional rights. Mr. Norton, the federal judge in the third indictment was uh, reportedly randomly assigned to oversee the proceedings, and uh, her name is Tanya Chatkin. She was appointed, however, by former U.S. President Barack Obama. So how... Can people be assured that she could be neutral? Well, the reality is that this is getting at the heart of a big problem in the United States, which is just how politicized the judicial system is. And essentially, every time a president comes in, one of the main promises they make to a lot of their constituents is that they're going to appoint as many judges as possible, going up to the Supreme Court, of course. So really, I think your question really hits the nail on the head. The issue in the United States is how extremely partisan all of the opinions on all of these cases are. I mean, in, in terms of uh, Republicans think that, that everything is rigged against Trump and this is a show trial. Democrats largely agree that their, the proceedings are completely fair and there's nothing that can be criticized about them. And I do have to say that, I mean, these two sides are not exactly equal. We should stress that among the Republicans, there are polls that show that among Republican voters, mm -hmm. a majority of people think that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected, that actually Trump won the election and it was stolen from him. So what we see is a major crisis of confidence in the institutional framework of the United States. I mean, there is no evidence that Trump won the election and it was stolen by Biden. It's, it's not true. But a large number, tens of millions of people in the United States believe this. Yeah. And it's reflected in the fact that there's this crisis of confidence in institutions like the judici judicial yeah. system itself. Professor Schwartz, um, given yes. the kind of polarization and the lack of trust, which is evident, shouldn't there have been more care being taken by the current administration to avoid suspicion of partisan politics in the cases against Trump in the run up okay, to the elections? All, I think that has been done. That's why Merrick Garland and the Department of Maine Department of Justice disqualified themselves from the case. And Mr. Smith was brought back as a special prosecutor, given his own staff. He wasn't uh, in any way, shape or form vetoed by the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice gave him all the help that he needed. They gave him all the money he needed. And he sought and followed the evidence where the evidence took him. One of the main things that makes this very fair and, and is and you have to look at it, the witnesses against Mr. Trump are all former members of his administration or they are people he appointed to his administration or they are his former lawyers. They are the people that are, in fact, giving up the evidence against him. So I understand why people feel that way. But I think that, that in this particular instance, I don't think we can say this is any failure of the American judicial system because, in fact, this particular judge was appointed to handle this case by what's called a blind draw. And having been involved in it, I will tell you 
that there's no way to rig it. The only way that a case goes back to another judge or gets assigned specifically to a judge is if they've handled that defendant before or they have a pending case involving those parties. Otherwise, that just doesn't happen. And a computer does this. A person doesn't do this. A computer does this. And it's meant to even out the number of cases that go to every judge. So I have no problem with the blind draw in this case. So do you think, Professor Schwartz, that you know, there are a huge divide and a huge taint of politics? At least the trust is not there. What do you think has to be done to repair that and at this critical moment? I would point to what happened to this country 50 years ago with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was a very corrupt man who was forced out of the presidency because he was about to be impeached. He should have been charged. He should have been indicted. He should have gone to trial. And if after that, Gerald Ford wanted to pardon him, that would have been the time. This country was so divided, as divided as it is today, over whether Richard Nixon was guilty of the things that they said he was until the tapes came out and until the people from his administration rolled over and said, this is what he has done. And then they became united. And when they were united, they wanted him out. I think more people wanted him charged and punished at that point. And Gerald Ford took that away. If Gerald Ford had not pardoned him and allowed the process to play out, we wouldn't be having the kind of debate we're having today. Mr. Norton, do you agree? I do agree. I think those are very compelling points. And I think that if you do have to compare Trump to a previous U.S. president, Nixon is pretty comparable. Although I would say that, I mean, what Nixon was accused of, and there's a lot of evidence showing, especially in the hacking of the, the DNC, the Democratic Party's office, to get information on his opponent in the upcoming elections. I mean, what Trump did is actually even more unprecedented. And I think the third indictment, in my view, really stands alone compared to the other two. There's, I think, been a lot of justified criticism of the first indictment, which has the most, I mean, dozens of of charges against Trump, of felony charges. But this third indictment, I think, is really important because what Trump did with trying to essentially steal the but, election yeah. and basically How, launch a coup yeah. can be Sorry used for as interrupting. a for Sorry for interrupting, Mr. Norton. But as high as 86% of Republicans believe this was trying to stop Trump campaign. Yeah, well, this is exactly the, the institutional crisis that we see in the United States, where tens of millions of people do not have confidence in really any institution in the U.S. government, and it's completely partisan. So I think the real danger going forward is that this is, has established a precedent now, and Republicans are going to try to go after every single Democratic president, okay. and we can expect potentially Democrats right. going after Republicans. I mean, we're seeing really kind of okay. a breakdown we, of yeah. institutional confidence in the U.S. government itself. We have to leave it there, but we'll keep a close watch on the situation. Many thanks to Benjamin Norton and Jeffrey Schwartz for joining us. And with that, we are going to leave it there for this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got the point.